Thank you for listening to Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan King. In this episode, I'm speaking with New York nightlife legend, and I mean a true legend, Chichi Valenti. Chi-Chi has been part of some magical periods in New York nightlife, starting at the Mud Club in the very early 1980s to Danceteria, and later was one of the co-founders of the weekly Jackie 60 party that ran all through the 1990s. Jackie 60 is arguably still unmatched to this day in terms of the amount of creative output uh, and energy that went into the weekly themes and different events that sprang from that incredible collective, which was comprised of a number of different people, but Chichi Valenti was definitely one of the people who spearheaded Jackie 60. Um, from Jackie 60 sprang an annual event called Night of a Thousand Stevies, which uh, was a massive Stevie Nicks tribute event that featured drag performances, live music, burlesque, and this year would have celebrated its 30th anniversary at Sody Hall in New York. Sadly, like essentially all large-scale events in most cities uh, in North America, it's been canceled uh, in the time since Chi-Chi and I conducted this interview. Uh, nonetheless, there is shared optimism in our conversation. Chi-Chi and her husband, Johnny Dinell, who's an incredibly accomplished DJ in his own right, uh, split their time between New Orleans and New York, but are still very much invested in New York nightlife and are without a doubt icons. Yeah, I basically started going out to clubs in New York when I was like 14 or 15. And, um, you know, like it wasn't an issue then to be very underage if you could carry yourself like a person who was a bit older. And so I went to some very interesting legendary clubs before I started getting involved myself. Um, and then um, from the late, very late 1970s, I was first involved uh, at the, the Mud Club, which is one of the, those cradle of civilization clubs that where, where a lot was born. And um, very few people knew about it. And it, there are very few pictures even of it, and it's kind of better that way. I think when I first moved to New York was when I picked up a book about the period in New York nightlife, sort of from like 1979 to 1983, when it was like this really kind of sweet spot. And I want to say you're quoted in it of talking about Mud Club. Was it Last Night a DJ Saved My Life or um, the uh, Love and Death on the New York Dance Floor? That's the one. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that was a really, he did an amazing job and was researching it for years and years. I mean, that is a beautifully done and fact-checked book because a lot of stuff that comes out about clubs is just nonsense, you know, from about the early days because there were really no records of it. And, you know, the memories come out of people as they begin to age and then everybody colors certain periods through their own lens of where they happen to be. So anyway, that that's the rare exception. And then that's where like photography books can be so much better than than words. So take me back to the absolute very beginning. I didn't realize you're from New York, like or the New York area. 
So did you, did you, were you born and raised in New York? I was born in New York and I was raised in New York and uh, Long Island and then, uh, and then moved to Chicago briefly and um, back to New York and then London even more briefly and then back to New York for good in 1980. And that's, that's where my journey in kind of uh, participating in clubs started then where I first um, had the idea to do this event based on the Kenneth Anger Hollywood Babylon book. And um, I was just together with my husband, Johnny Dinell then, um, and it was like our very first year or so together. And we wanted to do this party in the backyard of this completely destroyed uh, Jefferson Theater, the bar that was on that floor. The, the building came down. It was an old vaudeville house, and it was like filled with rats and everything, but really kind of gorge. But the bar was still open and had a backyard, one of those East Village backyard of a bar backyard. And it's now like a, a rich, like, co-op or condo building called the Jefferson. That's the actual site. But it, it had been a burlesque house where, like, Mae West had performed and all the, you know, very, very important legendary theater. So the theater was already well closed, I think maybe from the 60s on. And... Um, it was too far gone to even be restored, but the bar on the ground floor, a very simple bar, was still open in that way that bars are, are just, those kind of bars at that time could run forever. And we lived right upstairs in this wonderful, one of those wonderful, you know, whole floor of a building, illegal lofts that I think was maybe $200 a month. And there were like, you know, three to six people living there at any time, and and everybody had plenty of space. So, you know, those really made the that East Village lifestyle of, like, the late 70s, early 80s possible because your costs were so incredibly low that you could, say, bartend for, you know, one or two nights a week or, in my case, work a door for two nights a week and, and actually be able to pay your rent, which is pretty amazing. So that's how it started. So instead of Hollywood Babylon being in our backyard, we had happened to go out because um, Bonds International Casino had just opened the um, that amazing venue uh, in Midtown where The Clash had played later for three weeks um, it was it was only open for like a year, and it was this Deco um, X Casino that had become a, a department store, and then was made into this nightclub, Bonds. And so we went like the very first week that it was open, and because it was Deco and on this grand scale, it was very Hollywood, and we just said oh my God, this would be so incredible for Hollywood Babylon. So we happened to speak to the owner that night and ended up doing this mad, enormous version of Hollywood Babylon with Kenneth Anger renting like stuff from his collection to, to use as decor and making the fountains run red with dye and restate, restaging like 
Marilyn Monroe's uh, death scene bedroom in one room, like these installations. And it, it was really incredible. And we did it like in the middle of August on a weeknight. Um, and it was the most incredible party. And it was our first one. And it was so, the scale of it was so enormous. And we just kind of fell into it. And so that, that was our, our first real event in terms of being producers and creating events and stuff because at that time and and now you know Johnny was uh was working as a DJ at, at clubs like well he started at the Mud Club and then went to Danceteria and Area and all these places so he was doing that and um so I started doing some of these events and uh of various kinds through the 80s and then around 84 85 86 like so many of our closest friends started getting sick and dying you know the whole AIDS thing just hit our world we were very very young and all of a sudden you know I mean I think we were like 24 or something when this started happening and it's very it's kind of like people that live through a war in a way because our you know maybe 18 out of 25 of our closest circle were wiped out and um, so then out of that we saw we felt the absence of these people at night even how great clubs like for instance area were of their time but there was this terrible absence when the most, you know, creative people, when a lot of them suddenly weren't there and people were grieving. So um, we were, you know, involved in writing about nightlife and Johnny was spinning at many places, the tunnel, the Suzanne Barsh parties, um, the Roxy places, you know, around town. And, um, Towards the very, very end of the 80s, we just started getting a little bee in our bonnet. Like, if we want a great club to go to, we basically have to make one. Yeah. You know, because it doesn't exist. It's And it, it's it, a little bit later, we found that great situation is, quote, you know, the hacienda must be built. But that is very informative of, of how we felt and what made us move. And so we had, we had been producing some shows that were just, I don't know what you call that when it was kind of like people would come through town with a show, like starring the biggest Chinese pop stars. And for some reason, hire us to stage this show at Webster hall. And so we would end up really doing, we were like journeymen club producers in a way, or journeywoman or whatever the, that word is. And, uh, but along the way, we connected with uh, Richard Move, who was a choreographer um, who went on to do uh, Jackie 60 with us as a co-producer with Johnny and I. And also at the time when um, the whole voguing scene was, was basically uh, exploding here, we met Kitty Boots because um, she came over with the people who came to find us to do the 
extravaganza record, which ended up being Elements of Vogue um, with David Ian Extravaganza. So, but that's how we met Kitty because she was sent like to find us in New York because that's how you actually would have to physically find someone at that time because there was no internet or anything. You know, there, there weren't the ways now to find and collaborate with people. So it was easier for people to just send her. And she did find us. I remember when you would look at the club listings and you'd see like who was performing where. And All right. And who am I going to run into at that show? Or this person loves them and I'm, them and I'm sure will be there. And I totally agree with you. Yeah. So in 1990, at some point, uh, Johnny was spinning at uh, the club Nell's and the owner there, Nell Campbell, who is a genius. She's like the little Nell from the Rocky Horror movies and remains a friend. Uh, so Johnny was spinning there and she just said, you know, Johnny, the the club is like totally empty on Tuesdays. Do you want, and Chi Chi want to try to take it? And so we had this tiny fledgling idea for Jackie 60 and it wasn't much of an idea. And it started with like two tables of people uh, passing a microphone back and forth and Johnny spinning, but that was the early Jackie 60. And it, so it did start there. And um, we knew that it couldn't stay there because the usual crowd for Nels, if they would file in, I mean, there were some geniuses that, that would come to Nels. Um, Pedro Almodovar was one who was like, you know, there were, there were like interesting people that were part of their crowd, but a lot of their crowd was kind of too, it was too rich. And, um, you know, there were fur coats and things that we don't believe in. And, you know, so, so we knew that we would have to find another venue and we, in an, in an ice storm, Johnny and I got out of a taxi with downtown Julie Brown and the producer, Arthur Baker, in, in an ice storm. And we went to visit friends of ours who were doing the Click Club at this space at 14th and Washington. And before we even went in, we just said, this is it. This is Jackie. And we, we knew it. It's like, you just know it. Jackie 60 became like a movement. Well, Jackie 60, first of all, ran for that entire decade. And even at the time we closed it, it was still wildly popular. But we just knew that it would just turn into kind of, you know, this New York institution, which things were more hurtling towards, like, things being too easy to find. We loved the idea early on that a lot of people who ended up becoming collaborators and regulars of every sort, they had just found one of our flyers somewhere. Even one found, found it in the gutter and just knew they were like drawn by the flyer to know that they had to come to this place. And it was a little more like a mystic religion or something like you would find it if you were meant to. Yeah, It was female focused and it really had a lot of history to it and appreciation of research and history and details. And because it was on the weekly themes um, were so much more than just like decorating the show would be yeah. the theme. 
the lounge track would be the theme. There would be ambient video to the theme. The dress code was to the theme and so forth. And so we did 450 odd editions like that strictly. So a lot of real local geniuses like Clark could be such a part of it, especially people like Clark Render who could play all of these different roles. I mean, and he, he was so ideal. He could play the, the cult leader of the T. Doe cult, and he could, of course, play a bankhead, and then he could do like a Lost in Space thing, and then there was Trisket, the cocktail waitress, and so forth and so on. I mean, what a tremendous talent, and um, but you know, the true talents like Clark, they, they continue to bring people together. So Jackie 60 ran through the 90s, and the 90s was still, like, there was a fair bit of underground culture still flourishing, right? Oh, I mean, compared to now, it was a mecca. I think the 90s was probably the last era that there really were quite a few cultural movements in the night. And now um, there are still, I would say, great clubs and clubs doing creative things, but some of them are so far out and so spread apart from each other. It doesn't foster the same kind of thing when you can go out and, and walk to two other clubs from the club that you're at. It makes you go to more clubs. And it also, the more people that there are supporting that kind of work, the more of the creative ecosystem around it is also supported because without, you know, the wig makers and uh, the choreographers and the talent, et cetera, et cetera, and the sound people, you don't really have a scene like that, you know, with with people actually making creative shows. You you can have clubs that are uh, on the template of a wonderful DJ and people losing themselves in the DJ, a la, you know, what grew from Paradise Garage, which is wonderful, but that's not what we're talking about. As a bit of a skeptic, I still say, too, that so many of those parties, you know, and they are quite far out in Brooklyn and they're in a warehouse here, a warehouse there. I mean, it's kind of expensive to get there if you're going to take a car or maybe you're going to share a car with some people. But the entry. Yeah, the entries are, are ridiculously expensive for stuff like that. Absolutely. And that's another problem. And, you know, we. The, the main reason that we closed Jackie at the end of the century, specifically then, what, like why we made the choice to close it then when we could have run it maybe for a few more years and still done really good work over there. But um, all of our costs over there had tripled in four years because what happened was we did Jackie 60 there from... Uh, 1991 to our last night in 1999 but then in uh, 1996 Johnny and I actually took over the venue full time from the, the person who had owned it before and that's when it became mother and Jackie 60 stayed there on Tuesday. Yeah one of the most popular events during the Jackie 60 era it sort of morphed and grew and has evolved and that you stuck with is Night of a Thousand Stevies. Yeah, Night of a Thousand Stevies is the longest lasting. You're absolutely right. It began as just a theme for the night in our very first season. I and a few friends of mine had been at a Stevie Nicks concert, my first, 
And we were stunned how many, like at the same concert out at Jones Beach, and it was a solo Stevie concert in 1990. And at this same concert, I ran into both Dean Johnson and Joey Arias, and they were both huge fans of hers, and they both did her. And we were all not Fleetwood Mac fans. We were only Stevie fans, her witchiness, her femininity. And so that's how the first Night of a Thousand Stevies, which wasn't called that. It was just a Stevie homage, I think called Belladonna. And even just at that time period, posting it on a few like Usenet news groups, we had like a, like a dozen or so people come who were like total Stevie fans, like the first year, because we were fans of Stevie, but it was like through our unique <laughs> look of what of what we were worshiping her for, which wasn't the same as being like a Stevie Nicks fan, especially at that time. And so these yeah. two groups like played kind of nicely together. Yeah. And the shows were fabulous from that first year. Um, and there were only four performers. I mean, but um, it struck some kind of nerve. And that was the first one that we were so sure that instantly became like an annual. We're like, we have to do this every year. And it was so, it was really out there because Stevie was going through this period, be, totally beloved by her own fans, but it was kind of when she was um, druggy and kind of directionless and the music had suffered somewhat, but she was still so fabulous. But she had become a little tragic. Yeah, like I remember having a cassette of hers and I have to look up which one it was. It would probably have been around that time that I used to listen to when I was like a child, but it was, she was wearing like a kind of like a like a red or like a burgundy, like taffeta gown or something like that. I, you know, something about her fascinated me even at that age. And I mean, I've since really grown to hugely appreciate her. And what was interesting is that she completely cuts through generational divides, uh, race, gender. Um, I mean, you pretty much name, name it. And there are people that love her for so many different reasons. And then, then there's a big like Wiccan following. And then, you know, a pretty substantial lesbian following, an enormous following of gay men and so forth. So we found that it was almost this perfect like blend of what our crowds were to begin with. And I think that that was the whole thing. That's why it, it caught on the way it did, because, I mean, before we ever started it, I know there was a something called the Belladonna Ball in San Francisco. I mean, we're certainly not we never say we had the first idea to do a tribute to her. It's just like the way that we did it with like respect and humor and, you know, applying these principles of like alternative theatrical club performance to it made it different than like a karaoke type tribute night. And it just grew from there. And we actually really welcomed these other um, you know, people doing her in Butoh or puppetry or striptease or whatever it was, not just people singing her stuff, as great as that can be and certainly is. So the last one at Mother was in 2000. And then the next two 
or at um, Hills, but it was way too small. And that's when we were courted by and moved happily to Knitting Factory when that was still in downtown Manhattan. So we stayed there for quite a few years, I think till, yeah, through 2006. And then uh, we moved again to Highline Ballroom, which was bigger. And so the show evolved very organically. And then six years ago, it moved to Irving Plaza, where it very happily was. Um, but they had closed for renovation. And this year's, it's, it's booked at Sony Hall. So for the very first time ever, it's not downtown. But we... We just hope at this point we get to go forward with it because it would have been 30th anniversary. There's something cyclical about it, right? The way that you have to kind of fight against that and still seek out the originality and the culture that's happening. I mean, what's your what's your feelings about that? I think that um, it's less cyclical than it's kind of more like you know, and again, getting into the situationist aspect, but it's more that kind of uh, lipstick traces on a cigarette idea, but the Grail Marcus idea that, you know, that, that things are passed in a certain way and they come back not as the thing they were, but they inform this like next thing. So that's, I don't, I don't really believe it's a cycle, but I think that probably the people who used to go to that Civil War bar where they had like trans prostitutes during the Civil War in New York that was written about in one of the low life or one of the books. I'm sure people who used to go to that bar like 10 years later were lamenting that every it was all over. That's so perfect. There was one place called The Slide, another called Parisis Hall. And in Parisis Hall, there's a description in the book, Gay New York. And they talk about busting into the dressing room upstairs and all these boys with (laughs) makeup and skirts on. And it was like the 1890s or something. Yeah, that's the whole continuum. And um, that's why my husband and I always laugh as, I mean, now this year, 2020, which was already kind of a momentous year for us because we were starting like our fifth decade in the night here. And because we we look at it as having really started in earnest in January of 1980, which is also we met each other in New Year's Eve that night and we're together ever since. And we did all this body of work. So it was already a very momentous yeah. And that's why I find it so fascinating to like go back over this stuff now because and it also teaches us that like we thought that the days of a New York where really and for real Johnny was spinning at this after hour somewhere and it was also in the same building was an FALN bomb factory. So he went back to get his records as you would the day after when you left them locked up in the club and there was like, you know, a SWAT team there, you know, and we, we thought that those times in New York, those wild times that we really came out of were over. And now I feel like these times are going to be just as wild and in ways already are. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really think we were going to see another New York this raw in our time here, because we also now 
uh, for years, we've spent part of our time in New Orleans, so we're in New York even less. Um, so to be here for this is in in our the beginning of our fifth decade with the entire night culture of the entire world shut down is just it's an interesting perspective to see it all from. Yeah, I mean, do you do you have optimism as to like what might evolve from this? Well, in terms of clubs, I mean, the the biggest problem with uh, creative clubs as kind of a you know fountain of culture like the the tradition that we come come out of was really destroyed by uh, simply gentrification and rising rents. It's that simple because the rent for people in a city like New York, the rent is the big expense because so much of what makes the city great doesn't cost a penny or is very inexpensive so um so in unless what comes from this is so long lasting and so profound that it's possible for people to live here again then i'm not optimistic that the the scene that we've just been talking about or scenes that that lasted decades are going to return but it's very possible that something more human is going to come out of this and human scaled, which maybe people will find new ways of, of being able to live here again. But it's very, it's very sobering for New York. You know, nothing is all bad. I'm like an eternal optimist, but I'm, I'm, I find this at time a bit sort of grim seeming just in part that I, I often found the way things were going with technology and social media and the ways that people we're beginning to interact, um, you know, even out of clubs. I mean, oh my gosh, lots of people have talked about this, so I'm by no means the first. But, you know, going out to clubs became sort of unnecessary, really, as a way to socialize. That's what makes events like Night of a Thousand Stevies. People really look forward to them because most of the year they're only communing online. So, so that's why I heard from so many of them in the past few days, you know, of course, they're all still coming in October, but we're, they viscerally miss the experience of being in the room together. Yeah, and I guess even if it is only once a year, I mean, it's different than it was where you'd gather with people every single week, but that you still have those opportunities to gather. I mean, it just... Yeah, and we, you know, there are lots of other things, large and small, that we're a part of, that we do get to have that experience and... Uh, a lot of our experience in the past decade has been with, we now, uh, well, Johnny does it constantly and I do it sometimes with him and sometimes working and some not, but we're at these enormous events like the Elton John uh, Oscars party where he spins every year and the Cannes Film Festival and all the, all these things that are canceled this year. But so we're, we're also, for the past 10 years, we've been doing more of that. And that's interesting because those kind of really, really enormous scale events are like these little cities that just go up for a week. And that's a really interesting thing to be a part of also. Um, and so we're lucky to be able to do it that big and then something completely tiny, you know, still in the East Village. And that's why it's very important 
to us to, to still be in the neighborhood, as they say. Wow. It's been a joy. Okay, sweetie. Have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you, Gigi. Okay. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Gigi as much as I enjoyed chatting with her. There is such a great depth of research that went into the events that she helped organize. Uh, and a few obscure books were named uh, in our interview. So I'll provide some links in the show notes because uh, there's really a whole world to get to learn about um, behind Jackie 60 and the nightclub named Mother that we talk a little bit about. I'm thrilled to announce that as of August 8th, Never Apart's physical location will be reopening uh, for open houses as some restrictions are being lifted in Montreal surrounding gatherings. Uh, definitely check the Never Apart website and or social media for confirmation before planning a visit. There's lots of incredible content there as well. A huge thank you to the team at Never Apart for supporting production of this podcast and to Jack Fox in Vancouver for sound editing, as well as DJ Dickie Doo in Berlin for providing the theme music. You can find me on Instagram at Jordan King Archive or on my website, jordankingarchive.com. Until next month. 